Welcome to the Someone Somewhere podcast. It's Thursday, October 25th, and I'm your host, Nicole. This is episode 20. This episode is brought to you by Ocean State Organics, our permaculture farm that creates tools for sustaining backyard food production in urban areas. If you enjoy this content, please support us by going to www.patreon.com slash oceanstateorganics. Today's episode is part of my farming series where I'm focused on spreading knowledge that can be implemented for a low cost and relatively easily, and also that draws upon community resources to make micro, small, or urban farms happen faster and more regularly. A big part of container gardening, which is the main focus of this episode, is simply to show people what's possible with very little infrastructure. I think when we talk about farming, we think about infrastructure, and a lot of that is industrialized. This isn't surprising considering the food system and systems of agriculture that we learn about. We rely on industrial tools throughout that process, from seeds to the way the soil is treated, the way it's harvested, packaged, and distributed. But in contrast to this, much of permaculture is focused on hand gardening or gardening at a human scale. So this strips away the need for such complicated and expensive infrastructure to which many large-scale farmers are either tied or indebted to in some way. So with these techniques, we're getting away from that excess of tools that aren't necessary to food production at this scale. Tools also interrupt the soil, which if you go back to episode 2 and listen to my explanation of compost, you'll see why undisturbed soil ecosystems make the conditions for high yields in small areas possible. Why would we container garden for utilitarian purposes? First, containers are usually considered decorative, and they still can be attractive, but the focus of this particular instruction is how to grow plants effectively in those containers, um, a step beyond buying seedlings and sticking them in a container with a little more soil. So in general, urban gardening cuts down on the land that will need to be deforested to create industrial farm settings. So a large advantage to urban gardening in general, which definitely includes containers, is that we'll start to create micro food production right in the city where you're cutting down on distribution, packaging, all of that. All of the things that are in that pipeline are now uh, cut by having the food production happen right in the city itself. Um, And it also leaves wild lands to stay wild. We need more habitat to be gained rather than lost. And right now we're in a major losing battle on that. So to stop industrial farming means to allow the wild land to stay wild. And I think that that's another really important concept Um, to how people would have farmed before and also farmed in a more wild sense or allowing the wilderness to uh, provide um, and more of a facilitation of horticulture than the way that we conceptualize farming, taking a piece of land and converting it to a farm space. So that's the first thing just about urban gardening in general and why it's serves many utilitarian purposes in terms of food production. Then you have the fact that the the soil is contained in a container. And that's uh, huge because it keeps things very organized. And you've now contained soil into one deep area where the 
the roots are going to be able to expand and grow much more than a traditional garden pot or a decorative pot would. Um, so we definitely want the containers to be a bit big on the bigger side. And that organization is going to bleed into all of the other concepts of farm of permaculture farming that can create a high yield in such a small space. Container gardens are also mobile, so they're very easy to run experiments or move them around to different locations where they can thrive. The place where you may have transplanted a certain cultivar might not be the best place for it, and the nice thing about the container is that you can move them without requiring any kind of transplanting, which would disturb the plant roots and put it at more risk for illness or death. Containers can also be easily covered or greenhoused for seasonal transitions, so you can get started earlier than the ground thaws, and you can also continue to generate cold-hardy vegetables and lettuces well beyond the first frost date if you greenhouse your containers or build infrastructure for them to be greenhoused under. Containers are also easier for children or folks that can't do heavy lifting or shoveling um, or bending over. So containers can be a great solution for lots of different types of people that can't do lots of hard labor um, and they would still have the opportunity to garden or uh, micro farm on their uh, living space. Lastly, containers can be maintained more easily and they require much less infrastructure than garden beds. If you had the choice of having to cut up a bunch of wood to create a raised bed or grabbing a bucket and a shovel and filling it with soil and get seeds planted, which one do you think you could do faster? Obviously, you'd be able to implement the bucket or the container faster than you would building any kind of infrastructure. That, ta that takes time, it takes planning, carpentry, math, lots of things that many people are just simply not going to want to embark on um, in the immediate sense. So I think this is a really easy way for people who don't necessarily have the skills or access to equipment um, to still be able to garden effectively. And then there are other considerations, like black containers will collect more heat, terracotta pots will lose moisture more quickly, tubs or troughs that don't have immediate drainage are at risk of overwatering, so they need to be under a porch or an awning or something where you control how much water is getting into that container. And so these are the things you'll want to think about when you're choosing what you want to use. Main concern with wood or anything wood-based is whether it's pressure-treated wood or not, because pressure-treated wood either has arsenic, copper, or fun fungicide on it, and so that's going to defeat the purpose of working with organic soil, so you'd want to stay away from that. If you're going to make a container from wood or make your own container, you're going to want it to be redwood, cypress, or red cedar, because these are relatively rot-resistant woods um, so they'll last a long time as a planter but this is why we like to use food grade buckets so this means buckets that can be found at a grocery store or a restaurant they've carried food already so you can be sure that they're food safe plastic and if you're unsure if your container is food safe you can check the recycling symbol on the bottom of the bucket the best is number two which is high density polyethylene but numbers one, four, and five are also food grade. 
The exception is number seven, which uh, is the delineation for bioplastics, but not all number sevens are bioplastics. Uh, so it's not a bioplastics only category. So you'd have to know whether the material you're working with is a bioplastic and labeled number seven, and that would be safe as well. But number two, which is HDPE, is what all food grade buckets are made from because it's one of the more stable plastics. It doesn't contain BPA or corrode easily, so it can move lots of different types of food items and is safe. It's also what child's toys are usually made with, um, but it's still plastic and I envision a plastic free future. So that's something that we're working with materials that we can gain easy access to while also realizing that we need a different future that doesn't involve plastic. Um, that's a, a question that I get asked a lot, but why would you use plastic? And I agree, it's definitely something that, it's a good, better, best thing where you have to think about what you're doing and how you can do things to the best of your abilities. I think if you're using a food grade bucket, you're in a pretty good shape as far as plastic use. Um, and you can be sure that it's not leaching into the soil the way that other plastics uh, under less regulation would be. The reasons that we use food grade buckets regularly for farming is because they're five gallons, so they hold quite a bit of soil. They're also industrial waste, so they're easy to get a hold of and usually free. And that's a main component of how we even got started farming seriously is that we didn't have any upstart cash to start that project. So it was all about community resources, trash, trash to treasure is a really important element to what's available in an urban environment and, and how to garden safely. So I think it's why we've used pallets so much in the past to make beds. It's, there's a lot of them. And this theory is kind of taken from the Earthships model to a certain degree. So it's thinking about dealing with waste and how dealing with waste is going to be essential to moving forward um, because it's something that ultimately we'll have to contend with. Uh, even if we do want to change our relationship with the Earth, we have to contend with what's already been done. Um, we can't just start from scratch, unfortunately. So for those that don't know what earthships are, an earthship is a type of passive solar house uh, that is made of both natural and upcycled materials such as earth-packed tires. Knowing which materials are safe to utilize and the creative designs to utilize them are tactics that are worth practicing and familiarizing yourself with because that already has created a good amount of ingenuity. And that's not the whole story. You know, we'll still need to halt production of harmful goods in the future. It's a very complicated question, but the buckets are a really good example of just using what is available. And so that's why I go so hard for them. And I've also produced, you know, tens of uh, pounds of food over the course of a couple seasons with them. So I, I know that they do produce uh, just as well as a lot of other types of uh, raised beds or, or other types of garden beds. So there's also the option of vertical or hanging containers. So you could hang some uh, buckets and grow things out of them um, in different ways. People have done uh, certain like two inch holes and then had different plants coming out of the holes. So it uh, naturally hangs like tomato vines and things like that. Or you could just have things growing up out of the top and they'll vine over. Um, 
And hanging containers are great because it's beautifying, it's a natural wall or a natural barrier. It can involve other types of arts like knitting or macrame, and plants can hang, which many cultivars would naturally enjoy. So these are all um, considerations to the materials that you use and, and kind of how you want to design your container garden um, because they can be quite beautiful if they are uh, you know, well-intentioned and thought through. The next and very important preparation is how do you prepare the soil? We've always talked about lasagna layering, so you'll want to have focus on drainage because of the container element. If it doesn't drain well, your plants will be too stressed and they'll choke, they'll choke themselves. Um, the microorganisms that support them live in an aerobic environment, which basically means that air is underground. So we learn about earthworms and why they're important to keeping the ground aerated, but fungi is also essential to making sure that air and water can cycle through um, this ecosystem that's under the ground and make sure that everything is alive and well. This is why wood matter is a great bottom layer to your lasagna for your container. So wood chips, branches, or any kind of rough mulch are good for this. If you have gravel, that can also be a good bottom to uh, your soil bucket. And then you'll want loosely sifted compost to fill up the majority of the rest of the bucket. Again, this non-compacted nature of the soil is highly important to having a good yield. And so you'll want a compost bin that you can generate your own loose compost from. Bagged soil is okay, but you have to remember that it's bagged, and so it's been in an anaerobic environment, which means that it's devoid of the microorganisms that are aerobic and live in a, an air environment just like we do. So you'll need to bring them somehow into the bucket to get a living soil going and actually feeding your plants through uh, the nutrient cycling that compost provides. So any kind of bagged soil is going to need an amendment of something living, such as a compost, vermicompost from someone else's compost, or a bit of manure to really bring those microbes into the space and allow them to start working. But of course, the best way to feed your soil is directly with vermicompost. So I think having a separate bucket or a bin that's specifically for aging your food waste or composting it um, and adding worms to it so you can always pull out soil when you need more is the most efficient way to make sure you always have soil on hand. And if you're really into the cycle of things, your food waste will amount itself. So it's good to put it to good use and actually see it turn into soil over a couple months. Um, I just think as a process, as an experiment, to actually watch it happen is very educational and that it can also show you the difference between what compost can do versus what bagged soil would do uh, to a, any particular bucket. And again, the cool thing about buckets is you could run that experiment if you wanted to with two buckets to, to see the difference in a yield. Next, you'll want to think about preparation for planting. When it comes to seed starting for doing any kind of containers, I like to start seeds indoors. We use cartons, which would have held a flat of 30 eggs, and fill those with compost and plant you know, one or two seeds per carton uh, indentation. 
and then I'll use upcycled plastic bags to surround those cartons and spray them down with a diffuse sprayer. And so I've had really good luck in the late winter with that kind of microclimate technique um, to get them heated up and to get those uh, seedlings started. When the first true leaves show themselves in the cartons and are kind of pushing up against the, the plastic bag that's their little microclimate, it'll be time for transplanting them. And when I go and transplant them into a bucket that's been prepared, I'll actually use a, a stick to make a little indentation. So not really digging or disturbing the soil, but just a you know, l large enough hole where that root ball can go down. And then I'll take the root and I'll place it in that small hole and I'll cover it up to the first leaves themselves. So really you're, that first little stalk that comes out of the seedling, like that's all going to get covered and then that will branch out and become roots um, and the stem will continue to grow. So I think it's really important to make sure you like fully bury the seedling. A lot of people just bury up to the white part which we think is like going to be the root but I think going up further it really establishes their roots very early on in their um, in their life and they'll do very well that way so that'll help establish a strong root ball and when you go ahead and plant you can think about companion planting techniques and planting with permaculture intentions so thinking about the height of that plant when it matures and what att attracting insects will come to the area, uh, planting flowers with them, or just being intentional with how you organize your plants so that you can maximize the space that you have. I see succession planting as another rhythm to farming that takes a few seasons to really begin to understand. Succession means you're constantly at all stages of birth and life and death at once. Keeping the timing is how you have that consistent yield for many months. Succession helps keep soil covered, continues producing for you, and producing seed, and these cycles will just turn over within a few months, so you could have several harvests in a season from spring to fall. And when you look at seed packets, you could be mindful of the number of days to harvest that it lists, and a lot of the 30 to 90 day harvests are great for buckets because you'll get the full breadth and life of that plant and then you'll also be able to harvest the seeds from it and maybe do it twice in a spring summer fall um, so you can also think about what you're growing and whether it's going to need supports anything can become a support so you could forage branches and tie them together with twine at the top for tomato or cucumber steaks and also look around for things that they can grow on like railings or other existing vertical structures that you could train them to grow on this will verticalize the bucket and make better use of the space and it's a beautiful design element in another way uh, if you're thinking about it in that way when you're having things kind of vine all over your um, architectural elements it can beautify your space arguably the most important part of container gardening is drainage if there was one thing that I could tell someone about container gardens in in one sentence it would be to make sure that there are drainage holes um, because you really need to make sure that the plant doesn't get stressed out and can't breathe from being waterlogged. Um, it will drown, its roots will drown in the same way that we would drown, um, and you also need air to be circulating there. So us and plants are very similar in this way. 
But because you have drainage and because it is a small container, you have water that's evaporating more rapidly than in a big field. So you have to keep watering it and you have to pay attention to when it gets sad. Um, you don't want it to be stressed out because it'll stop growing. So for this reason, keeping soil out of direct sunlight is really great. You never want the soil with nothing, no plants in it to be just hanging out in the sun because you're just drying out that moisture and the microorganisms in the soil are dying when that's happening. So planting out the whole soil with companion plants is really good as it keeps everything covered. So you could have one vining plant or one climbing plant and then you could have a ground plant like an arugula or a lettuce to go underneath it because that Climbing plant isn't going to be taking up any space on the soil surface, which leaves the soil exposed. So you'll want another type of, you know, dandelion or something to really keep the soil covered um, with plants. You'll also need good drainage all the way around the container. So the bottom and the bottom sides are good. Plants that are overwatered will be droopy and they'll be asking for more air. So you'll need to make sure that they're able to fully drain and dry out the soil before they'll go back to growing. So this can stunt their growth a lot. And it's definitely why before you even plant in the bucket, it needs to have holes. Like make sure that you do the preparation for the bucket first and say, okay, this is now conditional for growing things. Um, Because once you start growing something and then it gets choked out, it could affect its whole development and fruiting process and you might only be in the vegetative stage at that time so it's pretty disappointing in the long run. Um, So with food grade buckets I just stab them with a sharp pair of pointed garden scissors and that's because I'm all about how how do we accomplish this quickly it doesn't have to look pretty. Um, For some people it might though so you could use a drill or a hammer and a nail. There are any way that you can think of to make a hole that is pretty small um, but still going to drain uh, will work. So as long as you can achieve the drainage, it doesn't really matter how you do it. And I think people get very caught up in like, well, how do I do that? And then someone suggests something. And for me, it's like use whatever tactic you want. Just make sure that there's holes in the bottom. (laughs) So as you transplant your plants and your plants begin to get established, you'll want to begin adding more compost to them. So this is another way of saying you're feeding them, Um, but really you're not feeding them nutrients, you're feeding them microbial life, and that microbial life is what feeds them. Um, So the nice thing about buckets is that if they're living in the soil, they'll continue to get processed and it'll gradually depress in size, like the actual height of the soil will get lower and lower as time goes on because the compost is continuing to break down those microorganisms are just chilling in there doing their thing so there'll always be more room for adding additional microbial life or adding additional layering um, to your lasagna layers so adding soil cover for areas that are not planted out is again really essential to keeping those moisture levels up and so that those microbes can keep living So we use hay or wood chips or dead leaves, which are all great types of mulches, and you can go back and forth between them to get a nice diversity of organisms. Um, And you're going to want to make sure that the soil is covered to keep the soil moist and that ecosystem happy so that it'll continue producing for you. And I think you'll see a big difference in the moisture levels or also how often you'll have to water once you add mulch. 
I think it makes gardening this way a lot more hands-off, so always cover your soil, whether that's with other plants or with some sort of mulch. Lastly, for feeding your containers, you could choose to use a compost tea. So in simple terms, what a compost tea is, is you take your compost bucket with maybe a couple inches of compost in it, and you're going to add water all the way up to the top of the five gallons, and then let that sit for a while and steep in there. And then you're going to strain it, and you'll get this wonderful brown liquid that is called compost tea. And the basic you know, science of this is we're finding an easy way to distribute those microbes quickly through the water. So you're going to water your plants with this water that's now been inoculated with your compost microorganisms and they're going to go be spread out in the soil and then find a place to live and they'll be happy and feed your plants. So there's a lot of recipes online for how to create compost tea, but it's really very basic. It's just compost plus water strain equals microbes in a very, you know, easily distributed form. As far as the pruning and upkeep of your buckets, you'll want to remove dead material because it brings decomposers and insects. Or if you see mildew, which looks like these white little patches on leaves and you'll see it spread in a very organized fashion you'll want to remove that because it'll spread pretty quickly and you don't want it to cross spread to different cultivars and um, as long as you do a pretty good job just maintaining it and making sure it's not spreading cutting those mildew leaves off it usually does fine in a permaculture setting and same thing with the insects when you have different types of plants, you attract different types of insects, many of which are predators to a lot of the aphids and a lot of the pest insects that we don't want in the garden. So the more diversity that I've grown, I've just seen that I have to do less and less pest control over the years because the predator insects are taking care of that for me because I've made a habitat for them to live in. And they are happy to stay. If they have a food source on top of it, they're very happy to stay. And then there's a much better balance in your container gardens. And um, there's never been a lack of predator insects with container gardening. I've seen several praying mantises since I started container gardening. And they seem to like the verticality of the garden. And um, there's lots of places for them to hide and lots of things for them to eat. So I think it's just another advantage to using permaculture practices. It's all about doing less pruning and doing less upkeep. And um, upkeep is a personal preference. It's about organization and yield and what you're trying to get out of your garden. So you could embrace the forest and allow for things to just take over on their own and things could be fine. Or you could be very, you know, manicurist about your buckets and really keep them very tight and organized. And either strategy is okay. And again, permaculture practices minimize pest damage. But if you need to neem oil spray or covering the buckets with some sort of cheesecloth or insect netting, uh, can do a lot to prevent caterpillar or aphid damage. So again, with a bucket or a bucket with a support on it, you have this easy you know, object that you can cover and keep your plants from being eaten by various pests and uh, predators that might want to eat your lettuce instead of you. The last couple of things I wanted to talk about were just some other really nice advantages that I think you know, container gardens will come in handy going forward in climate change. So the 
Big one is mobility of containers. Just the fact that you can pick up your container and move it to a different place is huge. Um, whereas we're definitely going to see strange weather events and climate change events that will disturb crops and possibly ruin large crops that can't move, that you can't pick up and move or can't cover. So I think there's an amazing advantage to the mobility of buckets, being able to bring them indoors if need be or uh, out of some strange weather like severe wind that could break your plants and things like that. And so I, they could even go on the road with you if you were moving and you could have plants on the road with you. Uh, so I think just the idea that your garden can continue under a lot of different circumstances is an advantage that's worth exploring, especially in urban settings on a larger scale and to get more people involved in these micro farming uh, productions because it will add up and it will be a more stable uh, source of food in the future. I definitely think that because of its mobility, that's one of the larger advantages that the containers have. And the other major one is that they're pretty all weather. So you could either turn them down for the winter by covering them and kind of keeping them like no dig. So putting hay or mulch on top of them and then just letting them sit and the worms will just chill and reproduce when it thaws. Or you could cover them in an insulated material like greenhouse tarp or glass to make them into a small cold frame. Certain cultivars can survive very cold temperatures like certain lettuces, kale, chard. So these would all be good candidates for your buckets because they could get started in the fall and then be covered and continue producing or just vegetate and not die and freeze over but still be alive amazingly uh, throughout the winter. And they'll actually live all the way into the spring. So it's pretty amazing. So you can have greens during your winter with containers. It's very possible. So really it's just treating the whole bucket like an ecosystem and you're going to get good results from that. Buckets are great for running controlled experiments and really getting to know plants in an intimate way. And I think they can be integrated into houses, apartments, sunrooms, stoops, porches, really these small nooks that you can reclaim space in certain ways because many of us are not going to be homeowners anytime soon and so the question has always been how do we run an organic farm on a space that we don't own and containers are like just one huge way that we can implement and actually execute these ideas in a really tangible way without having to go through such large infrastructure builds and so I think it really helps renters get a sense of how they can work on a farm. So the last thing I'm going to discuss is what types of plants to use in containers. Are there preferences for better ones? And I'd like to say that we categorize things so rigidly to our own fault in so many different ways, but gardening is no exception. And I think that there's this real delineation between edible gardens versus gardens that are for landscape. And I don't see it that way. Edible gardens are also flower gardens, especially when you want to save your own seeds and continue those cycles and actually be a part of the heirloom process. Things like arugula, mustard, or cabbage, these are plants that have gorgeous flowers that I definitely want as pollinators in my garden. 
So I'm not just going to eat the arugula leaves. I'm going to let that go to flower and feed the bees and then feed myself back seeds. So it's really just being a part of this process and realizing that you don't control the process, that you're actually at the whim of the process. Um, There's so many other players that are involved in running the process, but they all have beautiful elements. So I think that we need to move away from thinking about the differences between what is edible and what is a flower and moving more towards thinking that all gardens or most gardens could be edible gardens and edible gardens living in a decorative way or in a creative way just means that we're normalizing urban food production and it just encourages people. So some cultivars that I think grow easily and well in tended buckets include the vegetation of arugula, lettuce, tomatoes, squash, onions, cucumbers, beans, and tomatillos. And for herbs, I have basil, lemon balm, St. John's wort, oregano, mint, thyme, rosemary, chives, and parsley. And you can do a lot of different experiments with what works for you. These are just some that I have definitely had good fruiting yields for so they produced a lot of you know fruit in the end and I think that ultimately my goal with all of this is to help people do that in wherever they are or whatever setting that they can so I think it's just a good starting off point and pick things that you like and make sure that it's things that you'll want to care about or want to eat and I think all of that makes a big difference just not going too wild with how many different things you want but instead being focused on just a couple things a season like okay like this season I'm going to focus on ground cherries and I'm going to pay attention to them and what they like and after a few years you'll sort of have notes almost as if you've grown from acquaintances into friends with these different plants and that you know them well enough of like I know where you like to be and what you like to eat and all of that kind of stuff it will help you in the future organize your garden in a way that again increases yield and that's really what we would like to see in an urban setting thanks for listening if you like the show please share it with someone who would enjoy it I'm now on Apple Podcasts as Someone Somewhere, so please subscribe and rate me so that more folks can find the show. This episode was brought to you by Ocean State Organics. To support our efforts, you can donate to us at www.patreon.com slash oceanstateorganics, and there you will also find all of our farming resources to draw upon. This concludes episode 20 of the Someone Somewhere podcast. Thanks so much.